Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of the SportsMap podcast. This is the podcast where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation and return to performance. I'm your host, Nick Kane. In today's podcast, we're welcoming back a previous guest in Tim McGrath. Tim McGrath is an expert in the knee. He's a PhD around ACL rehabilitation. Uh, he runs Pitch Ready Sport, which is a, a, an excellent end-stage performance testing process for knees that he does and consults across the US and Europe and Australia to many top league clubs and also the owner of Elite Sport Physio in Canberra. Now with Tim today, we have chatted much around ACL in the past with him, but today we'll be chatting about uh, its lesser known and lesser talked about cousin in the PCL. Before we jump in and chat all things uh, PCL management and, and the tough decision-making process around surgery and non-surgery and how the early stage of rehabilitation differs to that of the ACL, uh, Tim is doing a course, a face-to-face course in Melbourne on the 11th and 12th of November this year, so that's 2023. Uh, spots are very limited. It's a super practical uh, and comprehensive two-day course held at the Essendon Football Club. So all details for that and registration is at our website, sportsmap.com.au. We have some big news coming soon around our large-scale conference, which will be coming to Melbourne in February, early February in 2024. So keep your eyes peels, peeled for a uh, fantastic lineup. Uh, it's going to have a unique topic, and I'm really looking forward to bringing together and a fantastic array of names here in Melbourne for an awesome two days of, of conference work and networking and a couple of pre-conference workshops just to bring it all together. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And of course, don't miss out our masterclass platform, which is just firing along, bringing a, a new video, a new session or masterclass every single month. Edna King has recently come out. We've got Sue Mays coming. We've got some work from endurance calf injuries. And we're off to the UK later this year to film some excellent content with a large array of experts in the space. So new content coming regularly. Uh, it's very practical. Uh, you can get over there, check out it at all with a seven-day free access. So certainly don't miss out on that one. Okay, so for the 27th episode of the podcast, uh, we're chatting all things PCL with Tim McGrath. All right, welcome back to the Sports Map Podcast, Tim. Thanks for having me, Nick. Mate, and today we're we're going to be chatting through, I guess, the uh, the poorer cousin, so to speak, of the ACL, and that's uh, we're going to run through a process of some PCL injury management um, and diagnostics and rehabilitation. But before we jump into all of that, uh, for those who haven't really uh, been in touch with you know your background and and what you're doing currently, uh, give us a little bit of a. Uh, a brief uh, run through on, on your history around your, your studies within the knee and, and then also a little bit of um, what you're currently doing with the new clinic set up in Sydney and a few of your recent trips over to the US and why you, why you head over there and what you're doing. So there's a, there's a, I'll, try and, I'll try and see if I can remember all those in order. But yeah, so I'm a physio, uh, I'm a physio by background, uh, Pretty much worked in professional football, mostly in Australia, but in the UK, sort of between what 2004 through to sort of 2017, pretty pretty much sort of straight through. Um, finished a PhD sort of on measurement of recovery around the knee with a bias sort of towards ACL, uh, which I finished that in 20, 2016. Uh, and then really off the back of that kind of formalised a lot of the, the work that we do now, which is around sort of um, consultancy and uh, 
you know, testing, benchmarking, if you like, um, in terms of recovery of function kind of after after knee injury. Um, and really now that that's the bulk of what I do between that and sort of normal clinical practice. So um, we're sort of in the in the final stages of setting up uh, like a, a formal facility in in, uh, in Sydney, um, which is really um, there's a there's a big artificial pitch directly sort of um, outside, so um, means we can get a lot of the running based testing, um, and then we've got an indoor setup as well, which is for sort of the smaller smaller aspects of the benchmarking, like the strength and capacity and uh, jump testing uh, things like that. So so it's it's pretty good because it's um, been a bit of a journey sort of get it to this point so um yeah it's, it's quite uh, quite exciting so that's uh is that under pitch ready or is that a component of pitch ready yeah that's that's pitch ready so um yes and 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 we can people can bring their athletes up there for testing or private athletes can get in there and, and, and run through yeah. the process so we sort of streamlined works. it where it's, it's you know people can book online sort of through the pitch ready pitch ready website and then as part of that um, we've got sports physios working with us now in, in the time that they're not sort of front facing with people. It's then the research, research arm as well. We're sort of trying to pull together. Like we've got data now, even up to this point on some around 1150 athletes. So it's a pretty big data set now spread out across everything from English Premier League to NBA to all the Aussie codes to uh, male and female um, population. So we've got a pretty big data set now. So, um, trying to sort of get some of that out there in terms of formal research publications, which which up till now, um, you know, just really been too time poor to sort of try and pull it all together formally. Lovely. And um, and then the, you're obviously also managing still the clinic in uh, in Canberra, elite sports physio and, and, and things ticking along okay there. Yeah, so that's that's always been my always been my baby. So between between that and the the consultancy stuff, doing a bit overseas kind of recently that it's Keeps you pretty busy. Nice, and uh, and you are doing a course as well for Sports Map later in the year uh, in Melbourne. Uh, so that's that's eleventh and twelfth of November at the at the SN Football Club on the knee and knee rehabilitation. Uh, what can we expect to sort of uh, hear from you at this course, and what sort of practical stuff will we get through? And yeah, a, a couple of the, the sort of clinical takeaways if I was to attend. I think it's the idea literally is to be really practical so not get bogged down too much into the, the theory of it all really the, the theory just sort of gives the reasoning why you do xyz but but on the back end is really just about practical implementation so um you know if you if you've got your own athlete how you're trying to take them from kind of a a to b um with a sort of a heavy emphasis on um the skill aspects of it um you know running feed forward sort of mechanisms, change of direction, uh, a lot of those components. So that, that's really it for me is just about trying to get it, you know, try and get to the pointy end of pointy end of the rehab, how to set people up. Uh, now we obviously talk about ACL a lot and, and at the course we'll sort of at least sort of touch a little bit on a couple of the other pathologies or are we more going to just, um, you know, see how it all blends together within the ACL realm? No, I think it's 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 obviously the ACL is a bit that everyone is topical and everyone is sort of most interested in. But um, the the nature of the beast is, it, you know, if, if if all you've got is a hammer, you know, then everything sort of looks like a nail. So the the, the bit that you learn when you um, get into this a lot is that 
the way you manage a, a knee that's got a big chondral lesion versus a multi-ligament versus, you know, meniscal repair, like all these, the, the beauty of dealing with a big injury like an ACL is you get lots of variations on the theme. So, so the idea of the early part sort of on that, on that first day is to sort of cover off on, you know, how you, you know, you've got your middle of the road sort of approach and how you might go left or right based on some of these, um, these different pathologies. So in the end, I, I feel like the rehab is the, the bit that is, once you set up the, the process, what the injury is, what the timeframes are, you know, what are the, what are the relative things to watch out for, um, then the, the rest of the rehab kind of falls into it. So that's probably the point of the first part of the morning is really about how to sort of um, set up the rehab so that you don't um, overcook a knee, uh, how you, you know, kind of progress different kinds of injuries. So it is, you know, the, the end stage stuff probably is more biased towards ACL because that's the one that is, you know, most people are interested in, the benchmarking that goes with it. But the first day definitely focuses on uh, different kinds of injuries. Perfect. Looking forward to it. Uh, the, I think it's selling uh, quite well. And it's, it's nearing uh, full capacity. And for those who live overseas and things, we are going to offer the virtual access. So uh, obviously the virtual access gives great insight and gets to see everything and, it, and it's brilliant. It's, it's not quite the same as being there in person, but obviously when you can't make it, it's a, it's a fantastic second option for those who live abroad. Uh, all right. Well, as, uh, as we do on the podcast, we thought we'd uh, throw you a bit of a, an injury and, and we'd sort of work our way through that and I've chatted to you uh, in the past uh, years here and there around some different management strategies around PCL and uh, I, I think, uh, you know, especially in the early phases of post-injury with the PCL, it, it's quite different to an ACL and it can be a challenging um, process to navigate for those who haven't done that so hopefully we provide some nice um, clear insights so I guess after this. so. To kick us off, um, I guess, why don't we talk around the mechanism of injury with the PCL and what that sort of commonly looks like? So the three variations for me um, really around mechanism, you've probably got it, it. Most of the time it's direct sort of posterior shear on the knee, particularly in a flex knee. So the, the, the most, you know, when I was at uni, they always used to talk about the car, the car accident where someone's knee sort of hit the dash. I don't think I've ever seen one of those, to be honest. I think it's all sort of been sporting ones. So... So the three that sort of come to mind as being the most common is like in Australian rules football, um, running up, uh, trying to protect your body with a bent knee and then someone colliding into the front knee and like the front of their knee and they get that posterior shear. Uh, another common one is um, landing on, on a bent knee on the ground. So, so tibia makes sort of first contact with the ground, pushes the knee posteriorly. I've even had some non-contact PCLs where – um, two, one was a guy who was just running, a hypermobile sort of Fijian rugby player that actually just um, was running in a straight line and managed to do his PCL um, and, a, and a, a baseballer sort of running to second base. So I, so I can think of two non-contact PCLs. Um, and then the other sort of variation on the theme is a, is a hyperextension injury. So like rugby player sort of jackling at the ruck, um, player gets hit, knee kind of hyperextends as they're trying to support their body weight. So, so they're the... They're the most common sort of scenarios that I've seen. All right, and then if we are having a having a bit of a look at the a knee post mechanism uh, assessment wise, so whether it's in the, the you know the following twenty four to forty eight hours or even pitch side, obviously with an ACL you you typically get a, a bit of a snap or a noise and, and quite a large effusion that comes with that. And what do things look like from a PCL first and foremost in that space? PCL can be quite subtle at the end of the day. Like they'll sort of think that they've done something, but you don't quite get the same 
instability feeling often that you do like with an ACL where that, you know, they'll run and step and their leg will kind of fall out from underneath them. Um, even if it's not, you know, in a screaming heat when it first happens, I, I can think of quite a few that have done a PCL and then their knee doesn't feel right where they're playing, but it's not until they get sort of checked after the game that, um, you know, you tend to pick these things up. So, so there can be the incidence of someone hurting themselves and then not being able to kind of get back up. But there, there are instances where they've, you know, done a particularly, more subtle mechanism like a hyperextension injury, and then kind of finished finished out the finished out the game. And the um, you know the posterior draw is probably the, the best test for for picking up like an isolated sort of PCL. And then the the pitfall with that is that you're obviously you got your ACL and your PCL being the the biggest resistors of sort of AP um, laxity of the of the knee in both directions. And the the pitfall that can happen with a PCL is when, if, if you've got your knee sort of someone's lying crook lying on their back with a bent knee and then I've seen it lots of times where people grab the, the sort of the, the front of the tibia and then go to push posteriorly and then they say oh yeah that feels nice and tight but it's the tibia is already sort of sagged back to you know tension it's probably resting on the ACL specifically or sort of other structures in the knee so they'll go push on the knee and they'll go yeah that that's um, the knee the PCL is intact so really to do it, you've got to make sure you sort of bring the knee right forward, like into anteriorly, and then it's sort of a quick snap um, posteriorly. So that's probably the biggest pitfall in terms of like that immediate sort of pitch side diagnosis, if you like. What about, um, are there a couple, any other assessment tests you sort of look at early early days, maybe potentially if they've had a knee hyperextension and, and some other sort of concomitant issues that may come with that with the posterior corner? And uh, does that sort of tell us much and what's that sort of guide you on? So management of PCLs is very much dictated by probably the level of um, sort of laxity you get in the knee and, and isolating, they've done sort of anatomical studies and you know, um, where they kind of cut the, the PCL and look what that does in terms of the laxity of the knee. So, so an isolated PCL injury sort of has a certain level of kind of posterior laxity, but then posterolateral corner um, and the meniscofemoral sort of ligaments um, provide a, um, a certain degree of, of stability to the knee as well. So, so often the grading of a PCL injury is dictated by how many structures you've kind of uh, pinged at the same time so um, not dissimilar to an ACL you've got this kind of normal range of um, normal range of laxity with it so you know um, a partial in terms of measured laxity of the knee kind of less than sort of about five to eight millimeters of difference side to side in terms of that posterior laxity is you know somewhere boarding around um, like an isolated sort of or a partial PCL injury once you start getting into the the eight to twelve millimeter sort of range, you're probably getting more towards a complete isolated PCL injury, and then more than ten to twelve millimeters, you start talking about um, sort of a PCL, but then probably other sort of structures being injured at the same time, and then that that might dictate what you do with it on the back end of it because you know there's always this debate around um, surgery versus no surgery with a PCL, and and to what degree. The, the knee is, is unstable, potentially dictates um, what you're going to do about it on the back end of it. So the post-lateral corner, you know, you, obviously it's a complex structure. So you're talking your, your lateral ligament, you're talking your, your popliteus and those other sort of small tendons running around through the back of the knee um, and the rotary laxity of the knee. So, so dial test probably being one of the better ones to do clinically. Nice. That was sort of, I guess, where I was leading with the, with the dial test. Um, 
do you use that and, and how much, uh, you know, it's obviously, it can be difficult to sort of get a real good scope on what that's telling you, but um, yeah, can you run us through that and then we'll move on to some imaging? So, so it actually does have good sort of validity. They've done sort of um, uh, studies on it where they'll anesthetize someone in surgery and then, you know, look at the validity of a, of a dial test and, so the, and, the, and it held up pretty well. Um, I, I do think it's not as good, like from having used it, as say some of the other clinical tests around the knee. So, so you probably do um, give it a, a bit of a grain of salt when you're when you're actually doing it. But it's the combination of like your dial test and your, um, you know, your varus laxity is is probably the the two that you're kind of looking at clinically. All right. So, obviously, imaging for most of these ones, we would. Um run through an MRI and you, you talked about the different grading of um, injury, so to speak. So uh, what more does maybe that tell us from an MR point of view? And then we'll go through and discuss some of that uh, decision-making around the surgery versus non-surgery. I probably don't put as much stock in the MR for a PCL as I would for other injuries. And the reason for that being that they, they image the knee kind of in full extension. And so for an ACL, you know, that can be quite useful because you're looking along sort of Blumenstadt's line and how, um, how how taut the ACL, does it run parallel to kind of the intercondylar wall. PCLs are off tension when the knee is in, in full extension. So I, I can think of quite a few over the years, like particularly like a chronic PCL where there's no like T2 signal to, to look at there. It'll get reported as normal because there's no sort of signal intensity on it. And because the thing is off tension, you know, if it's got an extra sort of amount of laxity, that's not going to help you. So... Um, I, I, I put a higher stock in the, the clinical laxity of the knee than probably what the MR sort of tends to show, I reckon. Um, and, and things like meniscofemoral ligaments can be quite hard to see on MR. So you have to sort of have a, an index of suspicion from, from that point of view, again, based on the laxity of the knee. Um, and, and even when you start talking about your MCL, PCL, MCL and LCL, you know, they're pretty thin um, sort of ligaments on an MRI. So it's often the grading they'll talk about it is to the degree of T2 signal in there. And um, very rarely will they get called like a grade one because to, to get sort of infiltration of edema through that, that doesn't really take too much. So um, again, you'll always read them say, it might say grade three, sort of lateral collateral, but it's it's really quite stable at the end of the day. So so it's obviously a tool to use, but I, I, I there's probably a, a degree of... Um, probably uh natural you know kind of not wanting to overreact on a on a mr when it comes to those kinds of injuries so uh the process around uh you know your clinical uh judgment as well as the um i guess taking into account some of the imaging findings but not uh that in isolation what what do we do from a surgery versus non-surgery and i guess the things i'd you know love to touch on uh, a little bit is probably will be different for different levels of athletes and um, expectations of their career and what have you. And, um, and also, I guess, uh, what do we find? Uh, I'll leave it there and let's, let's talk through it from, from your end to start with and then we'll throw some extra questions at you as we go. I think like most, most sort of people that work in sport will, will probably have a bit of a horror story of a PCL that they seem functionally quite good early, um, meant that they can get them back to, to sport pretty early and then the, the biggest risk that you have, I think, with a PCL, like I said, it's not like an ACL where you talk about um, sort of functional instability in that classic sense where leg falls out from underneath it. The, the biggest threat 
to a PCL injury is that their tibia sort of sags back relative to their to their femur, and that changes the center of pressure, particularly around the medial femoral condyle and the patellofemoral joint. So if you um, if you rapidly load those tissues, then you can get um, you know femoral condyle bone bruising and, and particularly like chondral lesions if if you're not too careful and um, early in my career, PCLs were in that realm of, okay, well, um, kind of they're, they're functionally, they, if they can operate, then, then kind of off you go. So you'd sort of push them pretty quickly. Um, and a lot of the coaches, you know, players that were, are now coaches, if you talk to them, I reckon the real test of how good a management tool is 10 years, 15 years later, uh, you know, what <laughs> how their knee is kind of tracking along. And a lot of them sort of have this knee that's uh, – in not too good a space. So so around the management side of it, I reckon, is dictated. It is a little bit about risk-reward. I mean, that's what professional sport is at the end of the day. So the, the the recreational kind of athlete that doesn't really have those sort of time pressures or desire to push, um, you can be a little bit more conservative in terms of the time frames and, and how you tend to manage them. Um, but but at the end of the day, that is the, that is the big threat, is around you know rapid degeneration of the knee if you're not too careful. So... If I was thinking uh, I wanted to go down a surgical path and obviously to protect maybe, um, you know, them developing that medial femoral condyle and degenerative changes within the knee, why wouldn't I do the surgery? As in, it sounds like we'd just jump in and do the surgery. Yeah, it's a, it's a six-month process, but is it a reasonably difficult surgical procedure and, and rehabilitation? Are there risks associated with that? Or, um, you know, you're pretty happy just to sort of run that operation knowing that it's going to be better for the knee long term? I think there's there's two parts to that. I mean, if you if you do talk to most of the surgeons I've spoken to, they've said the technique is getting better uh, over over time, but but technically it's quite a difficult operation to get to. And a lot of the laxity that you get on the back end of it, again, there's not a huge volume of research for PCL like there is for ACL, but but there are studies in you know non-surgical measurement of laxity around the knee and in, in relatively high level populations, like particularly in the UK. And um, the stability that you sort of tend to get with a with a surgical one tends to settle around sort of four millimetres, sort of side to side difference. Um, and then there's good studies that talk about um, uh, non, non, you know, conservatively managed ACL, uh, PCLs, um, where they get to a similar sort of a level. So, so the expectation, I think, once someone's had a a PCL rupture is there is going to be a little bit more play within the joint, but it's not so much that you massively load up the femoral condyle. Um, and unless you're getting sort of multi-ligament sort of trauma that kind of tips the balance towards surgery, probably most of the time my default would be to, to go the non-surgical path just purely because the expectation around laxity is probably going to be pretty similar. Time frame for return to sport is, you know, somewhere around that kind of three-month mark. Um, and you haven't had to um, run the, the, you know, the, the, the potential pros and cons of, of surgery. So, um, and, and if you end up do, you know, you can always convert to a um, to a an operation if you kind of need to. And, and again, the threat to it is a little bit different to um, like an ACL, where if someone has a big instability mechanism, they can chew up their knee. It's not like it's a free swing all the time. For PCL, it's around sort of the achieved level of stability that you get around the knee. And then that, if, if you get that, then you, that's a green light to sort of um, push them on. And I reckon the threat at that point to 
rapidly sort of burning the knee in terms of chondral change is, is probably not as bad as you might think. Okay, so let's sort of work off then if we've had a, a really high-grade PCL injury with posterior lateral corner and that may be going down the surgery path, but let's work off here an injury that's it's a full rupture of a PCL. Um, clinically and on MR, but we've chosen to go down the conservative pathway management. Um, <clears throat> what's that look like in the, in the early stages? What are we doing to try to, uh, I guess, encourage uh, the healing tissue and some stability there? So the, the PCL is completely opposite to the ACL. The ACL is taut in full extension. The PCL is loose in full extension. So to try and get it off tension and try and give it the best chance to kind of heal, like it's, it's intracapsular but sort of extra synovial. So the, the the process for trying to get them to tighten up as much as possible is really around a period of, of full extension, um, and then your for the, the 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 shear force on the PCL goes up proportionally once you get sort of beyond thirty degrees of knee bend. So. Um, so early days is full extension, and then you'll start sort of grading the flexion on the knee um, within a within a brace. So normally you'll sort of lock them in, in full extension, um, and in in most environments it'll probably just use a Zimmer splint, or you can just use your normal sort of ROM brace. Um, the the best way to manage a non-surgical PCL is to put them in a PCL brace because it sort of tends to drive the the tibia forwards. You've got this sort of support through the back there and there's different companies that sort of make you know versions of, of a similar thing which is something that drives the tibia forwards so normally i'll go two weeks in full extension um, then week three start them in the pcl brace sort of give them zero to 30 and then graduate the range so that they end up sort of being zero to 90 um, sort of after after six weeks um, and then the the exercise that you give them are particularly like hamstring wise ones that sort of reduce the reduce the shear force on the on the PCL. So so what we know from like anatomical studies is for one unit of load um, at night you know above ninety degrees that, that one unit of load is basically you know one hundred and twenty um, newtons of load. So um, the more you bend the knee, the more sort of shear force there is sort of happening at the knee. So so the the, the load is part of it, but the angle that you're doing you're loading the knee at is quite important with PCLs. Okay, we'll just uh, I'll try to break down just that uh, brace management. So it's it's zero to two weeks in a full extension, and then two to three at zero to thirty, and three to four at zero to sixty, and then but it, and then we're going to zero to ninety only after the six weeks. Is that the six week mark? Yeah, and then then from six weeks is where you'll start getting your your weight bearing re- like your classic sort of gym based weight bearing rehab happening as a way of sort of trying to prep them to run. Um, Hedging our bets both ways, because again, there's an estimate of biology going on here. I'll, I'll probably rehab them in the PCL brace, particularly with anything that has any sort of bend on the knee for kind of a week or two after that six-week marks, so up to that kind of eight-week period, then probably bin the bin the PCL brace altogether after that. On testing during that period, so let's say we're trying to get a improve that laxity um, of the PCL on, on a draw test, How when are you testing that? If you know what I mean. So, are we going to do it at four weeks while it's still trying to heal? We're we just going to wait and wait and wait and, and and see how we go at sort of the eight to twelve week mark. I definitely, I definitely leave it. I, I think it's a bad idea to just be every five minutes sort of swinging on the PCL trying to see if it kind of stickies up. So, once you've committed to that as a strategy, I generally won't test it before eight weeks personally because you just want to give it as much 
time before you actually start, you know, kind of hanging off the thing. So I'll just step back to a little bit of time frames for a moment here. So let's say we're at we're at eight weeks now. We maybe just got rid of the brace completely, and we're doing some weight bearing strength exercise, which will break down some of the rehab stuff shortly. When we talked around time frames from, let's say, we did go down the surgical path, um, and we mentioned a return to play maybe from non-surgical around your three-month mark. What is it post-surgery for a return to play, generally speaking? And how may this first two months post-surgery differ to what we've just talked about? It's probably more you just you're allowing for the ligamentization of the of the graft, you know. And obviously, if we're talking isolated PCL, that's one thing. Plus, what other whatever other things you're dealing with, like within the within the operation. So, um, it, it's really around allowing for that. So, so running wise. You know, you, you may not get them running till probably around sort of week fourteen, week eighteen, almost like a like an ACL plus an ameniscal repair because you're waiting, you're wanting to allow some some um, longer periods for, for biology to take its thing. And again, if you talk to different surgeons, you know some of them are okay with six months. Probably along the same spectrum of ACL, a lot of them are trying to push for a nine month sort of return to play as well. So um, I would say most surgeons are probably more trying to push for the nine month rather than the six month a lot of the time. And, and um, you, you probably have to have a bit of debate if you're wanting to kind of go faster than that more often than not. So it's really process I would say is the same. It's really around extending that protection phase within the PCL brace. So instead of kind of completely getting them out at, um, at six weeks, I'm probably trying to hold in that sort of phase, like delay each phase by an extra week to get them to around that 10 to 12 week mark. And then the process is, is essentially the same, you know, there, from there on in. Okay, sounds good. Why uh, why would they be pushing for a nine-month now? What's what's that extra sort of three-month going to give? Do you think is that more, again, around the ligament, the ligament healing process or is it purely uh, reducing, you know, trying to stiffen things up more or, or re-injury? What's that? Yeah, I think it's more like, you know, load to failure of the graft. So, so the... the the disadvantage you have with a PCL is that it's sort of everything or nothing. Like it's, you know, the the micro stress on a PCL, aside from loading it up in a bent knee, is is not that much in sort of normal running. Um, but if you know landing directly on the knee, obviously that that's a that's a high force. So I think I think the the rationale for that is around um, the, the load to failure of the graft. If it gets a you know if it gets a catastrophic or sort of high force incident, is What's it going to take to, to bust the graft, basically? Okay, so if I had surgery, my post-op rehab's not too dissimilar from the brace protocol, but extending it out by, you know, three or four weeks by the sounds of things, um, and then sort of probably carrying on from there into a normal sort of rehab process. Um, let's step back to, not to jump around, but we're, so we're in our rehab process, we're in the brace, we're working through that in the early phases. Um, Exercise-wise, um, Probably the main thing that often a surgeon will say or, you know, post this injury if you're getting guidance would be um, to not do any hamstring loading. Um, why would this be the case? And then how do we get hamstring loading into our rehab and when? So obviously, hammy-wise, you've got hip-dominant, you've got knee-dominant sort of versions of exercise. So again, if you're trying to sort of use the what research does exist as a bit of a stepping-off point, so for, you know, for one, for one unit of load, at, at sort of zero to 20 degrees, the, the posterior shear load is about 30% of that. So, you know, um, so, so the actual shear force when the knee is in more or less, you know, zero to 20 degrees of, of bend is pretty low. So, so so I think what that means is that a lot of your 
hip dominant loading variations, you can do those reasonably early without being too worried about what it's doing. So if it's closed chain with the knee in a, in a more straightened position, so your, your stiff-legged RDLs, um, your, your GHD kind of variations, I think those are pretty safe to do nice and early. It's really around heavy knee-dominant exercises that you want to be careful of, like particularly razor curls and, and Nordics. And and many years ago, um, you know, with, with PCLs, um, there's obviously autograft as a graft choice, but you'll, you'll see a lot of synthetic grafts come into it as well. Um, and I've, I've seen people bust a PCL, uh, non, uh, sorry, a synthetic graft doing, um, doing, you know, heavy Nordics, you know, reasonably quickly within to their rehab. So hip dominant versions, pretty safe. Uh, knee dominant are the ones you've got to watch. All right. So if I'm in a brace, uh, when am I starting some of my hip dominant? Would I still hold off straight away or would I maybe start at weeks four, week six? Or Yeah, I'd go week three. So even if it's just, you know, broomsticks, sort of stiff-legged RDL, you know, something like that where it's knees in extension, pushing through the ground, kind of hip hinge type action, they can start that in week three once they're starting their, their weight-bearing rehab. And then obviously progressing that through, you mentioned even the GHD. So is that in like a – how, how would you bring that in and when – um, that would be, depending on how irritable the knee is, that's going to be somewhere in that kind of six to eight week sort of phase, I reckon. So it's definitely before they get into a running a running cycle. Um, and it's and it's really around the cueing of it. So sort of trying to keep it closed chain rather than treating it like a like a hamstring curl. Um, so it'll be it'll be depending on the, the irritability of the knee, it'll be somewhere between six to eight weeks, but definitely definitely by eight weeks. And then so we talk around knee dominant and at times we can find this lag within the PCL. So they might be up and going pretty well, but their hamstring strength is quite a deficit there. And um, especially if it's been a post-operative and they used a graft um, in, in that situation. Um, how, yeah, how do we then get some of that hamstring loading in just your, your normal type of typical hamstring knee dominant exercises? When does that come in and, and how do you go about it? The million dollar question, the um, probably not, I'm not, overly desperate to get into it sort of before 16 weeks if I can avoid it because it's a it's a risk reward thing and again what research does exist in terms of the remodeling of like a non-surgical PCL is that usually around the 16 week the the tensile strength of the of the um the heel ligament sort of stays pretty stable you know what you get at 16 weeks is normally what you're going to get without some massive trauma sort of coming to the knee so probably if if it's a footballer and it's in season I'm trying to get them going you know, I probably won't do too many knee-dominant variations other than, um, you know, something that looks like a, an easy prone sort of banded hamstring curl or something that is just an activation thing rather than a pure load. Um, and it's probably more centered around isometric, um, in a like in a prone position, um, sort of from 16 weeks onwards. So, um, like mostly, you know, obviously we do Nordic testing um, within sort of football programs and probably instead of them doing... Nordics, like the, the rest of the group might do, I'd probably keep them kind of isometric for, for the rest of the year. And then um, in, in the off-season, they've, they've got plenty of time for biological healing. Then you can kind of explore what you do sort of the year after. So the, the hip-dominant stuff we can bring in relatively early, uh, and but then we would completely hold off our knee-dominant um, exercises until 16, or we would start at a point doing some, Saturday, let's say, hamstring curl. Let's, let's say hamstring curl or a... Um, or a, or a hamstring isometric on a on a bench where your heels on the bench and you're lifting up. Would you when would you start those? Sort of? So I wouldn't do 
I don't like those ones where you've got someone lying on their back and their their heels up on a bench and they're driving through. I don't really like those for this because there, there is a heavy sort of posterior force with that. Around the eight week mark is where they're you know I'd have them lying on their stomach um, with a you know with a, um, a a prone banded sort of hamstring curl, which is more centered around just some time under load, trying to get the hamstring to actually work so the thing doesn't become completely dyslexic. Um, but I, I would sort of very slowly kind of increase that as a progression, but I wouldn't really be as desperate to try and push load like I would with lots of other exercises because the, the bit that you're sort of fighting against here is is biology. And if you have a nice stable knee at 16 weeks, then generally you have to do something pretty dramatic to kind of unhinge it at that point as where I don't want to get to sort of 10 to 12 weeks and then I've um, made the knee, you know, sort of – more unstable just purely through trying to to try and push hamstring load yeah all right i'm going to ask a question that i might um a few people might want to ask or if, if you're listening but so do we think then if we're unable to get good hamstring loading in when i say good higher load hamstring loading in before a return to play let's say that they're looking to play around the four month mark here from a conservative management and the most hamstring work they've done is the hip work and some low-level knee dominant. Are we incre- are we increasing our chance of sustaining hamstring injuries on return to play? So obviously that that's the debate that always goes around with hamstring injuries. Like we did a study um, a few years ago with uh, NRL players and looked at like um, fascicle length is a thing that gets talked about in terms of hamstring injury risk. And we did a study that actually sort of looks like you know what are the what are the key factors that help. Um, in determining a player who is more likely to have longer fascicles. Um, the, the the summary of it was um, your 90% of the variability is explained by um, high-speed running, sort of above 80%, and also um, strength is the other sort of um, half of that. The rest of it is less modifiable factors like injury history and age and all those sorts of things. So of the modifiable factors, you've got running being half of it and you've got strength as the other half of it. Within that, it was load and it was um, uh, time under load were the, were the two things. So we, we even did 3D biomechanics of people doing Nordics, looking at um, peak thigh angular velocities and the angle that they, the so-called break angle when they fall over and, and break angle. So the actual angle of it didn't really, didn't really matter at all. It was really around the, the amount of force and the time under the load. So so for me, using, extrapolating from that is as long as the, the hamstring exercises that you do encapsulate that, which is high load and also time under load, and then you've got your running aspects of it, you're covering your bases pretty well, and they're not really having to walk the tightrope of you know potentially creating like an unstable knee in the background. So, so th- there are plenty of hamstring options that you can do that are super maximal, that are, um, have time under load, and, and then obviously you've got your running progressions at the same time. What are a couple of um, troubleshooting things that we may experience with a PCL throughout a rehabilitation? So, uh, you know, from experience at times, an athlete gets to some of their, their time when they're up to, to run faster or accelerate and they sort of just feel a bit of like a, a shunting when they're trying to accelerate with that full knee flexion. Um, you know, as that, for an example, how would we address that? Uh, how would you clean that up uh, during the rehab process? And what other sort of issues may we encounter throughout the rehab i feel like again like there's a couple of things to look at there what's the stability of the knee what's the lead up been in terms of that rehab but i haven't really had too much of that where people talking about they sort of go to you know accelerate or decelerate into that um, proportion and feel like a shift within their knee 
So normally if they're feeling with that, to me it's either the initial strategy in terms of the stability of the knee might not be quite right or there's there hasn't been this good layering in of um, the, the rehab progression. So the, the knee is just getting um, probably too much load sort of relative to what it's kind of been prepared for. So so that, they'd be where my brain would, would um, kind of roll to with those things. So the, the, the forensic part would be check the stability of the knee assuming that that's not necessarily a problem, then it becomes into the, 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 the layering of, of progressions. Yeah, beautiful. What, let's say also, um, you know, you can often see, you might do your rehab and you've been through your eight week mark or, and you've done some testing, or let's say you've taken them out to the 12, 14 weeks. Um, it's stiffened up a little bit from that whole brace protocol, but you know, not certainly not back to the level it was prior. So there is still a little bit of play there. Uh, functionally, they're really good. Um, I guess where does that sort of leave you moving forward? If, um, so it's it's not at the level maybe that the surgical would have got it to, and they're happy to play on. And um, you know, two, I guess what I'm getting at here, two or three years down the track, they're developing some of that medial femoral condyle pain. Um, yeah, h- how do you see that, and how do you sort of navigate that sort of it's process? Hard. It's a hard one. You're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't a little bit in that regard where it probably then just gets weighed up on that sort of risk-reward kind of element where, you know, stage of the season, age of the athlete, um, all, all those factors probably come sort of into play because, the, you know, the ideal scenario is that you get a stable knee and then that way you sort of got to reduce the risk as much as possible of, of having a degenerative knee. But if you work in football long enough, you realise that you the, the opportunity to get the ideal situation isn't isn't kind of always there. So it's it's probably a hard one to answer without that all those factors being sort of present at it at, at the same time. Um, and 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 again, like always, coming back to like a, a good way of sort of um, auditing that process. I think is like I said, you talk to these footballers that are now coaches. You know, any you know. They'll all have stories of, you know, I didn't miss a game or I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Okay. And, you know, do, do you regret that? And and some might say yes and some might say no. So it probably is the the eye of the beholder, you know, the, the individual that's involved that probably dictates a lot of those situations where, you know, what, what's an acceptable what's an acceptable sort of result here on the back end of it where, you know, them converting to an operation might um, might sort of achieve the, 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 the definition of what a stable knee is and all that, but they might then it turns into a nine-month rehab, they can miss a lot of footy in that process and that might, you know, might mean that they don't get another contract, that they don't do, you know, any of those sorts of things. So, so those factors come into play. I've seen, you know, and the other part to it as well is, you know, with, with operations is that um, no, you know, these things are, and there's always a level of risk associated with that, you know, infection. Um, I've seen one super rugby player um, where, um, there was this attempt to be really proactive with the long term younger player had a loose PCL the year before wasn't really managed at all so it was really quite loose um, and then there was this sort of everyone was on board with trying to be proactive in terms of managing the athlete like as in trying to you know create long term longevity of the knee ended up having like a PCL reconstruction and then um, you know the screw backed out that was sort of anchoring the anchoring the PCL so they've got the screw sort of rubbing up against the the joint surface so. Um, you know, th- these are all the things you kind of need to weigh up in, in terms of how you manage them. So I'm not sure that there's a, a really easy, straightforward sort of answer there. It's um, ideally you get to a situation where you, you go left or right at the beginning after the injury and then that plays out nicely for you in terms of getting a nice, stable knee. 
And then when you get to these other situations where it didn't work the way that you wanted to, then you know potentially there's some there's some pros and cons to each one, and that and that's a that's a difficult decision to make. All right, I'm going to sort of just uh, bring it together a, a little bit. Uh, I wanted to just cross back to some quad work and. I guess throughout the process of our exercise where we target quads and we're not going to go through this in absolute detail today, but is there is there scope where it differs to ACL, for instance? So if we'll just take our step through an ACL rehab pro- protocols from how we load our quads, is it is it much different or pretty similar? Probably not, probably not because it doesn't matter what the knee injury is, like basically insert all of them. The, the biggest... Um, Barrier, particularly early within the within the rehab, is it the knee's inability to tolerate sort of compression. So um, the, as the knee bends, too much of the load is absorbed at the joint rather than than away from the joint. And you know, really, the the way of approaching that for me is try and go high load quite early, um, and then stay in a non-compressive position, so like a zero to thirty degree range within the knee. So um, I, I would do that regardless of the knee injury. And then it just happens to be a side benefit that a PCL isn't really loaded in that sort of position at the same time. So just like you've probably got some handicaps in terms of your hamstring loading, you know, you don't really have the same handicaps when you start talking about um, the, the quad loading sort of aspect of it. So it's it's really that you can be pretty comfortable loading them reasonably quickly, especially if it's in that kind of shallow range of loading. And then once they've got, you know, good evidence of being able to tolerate good load in that shallow range, then start opening them up to sort of joint compression in that sort of phase before you get them to run. But, yeah, I, I'd say that's not that's not um, specific to PCL. That's probably how you attack most of them. All right, mate, is there anything that we haven't really covered from a sort of mainstay PCL management uh, process here that we've talked about? No, I think it's, it's really like the back – it's really about getting that early phase, you know, setting up the plan right, you know, um, working out what needs to happen in that kind of reasonably early part of the rehab. And then the, the back end of it is um, concepts that have sort of rolled across from, you know, rehab running with, with ACLs because you're just trying to get them back to a, a level of performance that is useful. So so I think that that course we were talking about, a lot of those sort of mid to late stage progressions, that there's a there's a huge amount of crossover there in terms of what you're, what you're looking for. Yeah, perfect. Well, um I mean, we might start to, to wrap it up there. You mentioned, obviously, the ability to see things through at the course. We're also um, be doing a masterclass at your new facility in Sydney on the PCL. So that'll be uh, a really practical insight into pretty much everything we've talked about. And as we say, our masterclass platforms often, um, you know, trying to work off the information you get from podcasts, but it, it's super practical and you can visualize everything, see exercises, uh, see the assessment process and all that in one clear package. So keep a lookout for that coming later in the year with Tim. But, um, mate, we're super appreciative again of you jumping on board, uh, doing some great things, and uh, appreciate uh, your knowledge as always. Thanks for having me, mate. Good to chat. 